As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Around four years ago on June 23rd, 2016, the people of the United Kingdom set out to vote on the future of their nation. This was a tally to determine the relationship that the nation would have with Europe into the future. The people of the nation decided against sticking with their European chums and the referendum came back in favour of Britain leaving the European Union. Now the whole Brexit debacle has been plagued by misinformation on both sides throughout the entire drawn out process. And a focal point of a lot of this misinformation has been how the economies of Europe and the UK coexist as part of the European Union and what life would be like if they went their separate ways. To get a clear vision of what to expect, we must look at the timeline of this relationship and see what it meant for the respective economies in the time before the European Union, during the European Union, during this drawn out breakup, and then use this timeline to speculate about what this will mean for the respective entities after the split. Europe is a dense collection of states, people, cultures and rivalries spread across not a lot of land. The whole continent has a similar landmass to Australia, but was home to over 300 million people. Dozens of nations and languages and ethnic groups and religions and cultures, it was a recipe for a lot of turmoil. Wars were basically the norm from medieval Europe through the Renaissance into the modern age. The only thing that really changed is they got better at building machines to kill the French with. After World War II, a lot of nations had the bright idea to form a union of nations. Now, the United Nations was already in the progress of being formed at this point, but was more of a political council rather than a region of coexisting states. In the months after World War II, Winston Churchill went so far as to suggest the formation of the United States of Europe, but that never really went anywhere. What did though was the Council of Europe, which was like an alpha test for the European Union. It was a direct council set up to facilitate trade and industry and cooperation between the member states of the continent. The hope of this council was that by working together, these nations would be able to rebuild and grow strong economies faster after the devastation of World War II. But it also meant that these countries would be slightly more dependent on one another. And if nations are dependent on one another, they are less likely to bomb one another. The European Council actually still exists today. It is often confused with the European Union, but they are two distinct bodies. The European Council actually has more member states with nations like Switzerland, Norway, and well, I guess the United Kingdom being members of the European Council, but not being members of the European Union. The Council has a lot less influence though. It cannot create or enforce its own laws. It doesn't give member states any preferential treatment. 
and it doesn't have things like inbuilt trade agreements. But in 1957, Europe upgraded once again. The Treaty of Rome formed the European Economic Community, or the EEC, which was kind of like the beta test for the European Union. You see, this one was a customs union, which started to look more like the EU that we know today. Member states of the EEC could trade freely between each other with no tariffs, trade barriers, and very few restrictions from respective customs. It also meant that anybody not in this special little club had to pay a universally levied tariff to import their goods into the participating nations, which meant that it was very beneficial for member states to trade with one another rather than to bring goods in from the outside. The EEC still wasn't the EU in its final form though. It is today one and the same with the European Union, but it does include states that are not part of the European Union. Countries like Monaco, Liechtenstein and Turkey are members of this extra special trading club, but aren't important enough to be considered part of the European Union that gets to make up the rules about how this club operates. They are kind of just along for the ride. And this does actually make good logical sense. Countries like Monaco and Liechtenstein are tiny, and it is super important for them to be able to employ cross-border commuting workers and have tourists cross their borders with minimal effort. But it wasn't until 1993 that the European Union became the entity that we know today. In 1991, the EEC was going well. European countries were happily trading amongst one another and wars were kept to an absolute minimum. But then, late in the year, the Soviet Union disbanded and there were a whole lot of random nations left without solid leadership or direction. Most concerningly was East Germany, which was now an extremely poor country after years of mismanagement under Soviet rule, which made Europe concerned. This trading business is doing great. I don't feel like going to war anymore, but now we have a poor and tumultuous Germanic state, and we know what happens when we have one of those. Maybe this is a good time to step up this whole European interdependence business. And so the European Union was designed as, amongst other things, a way to address the nations left behind by the fall of the Soviet Union. It expanded on the policies of the EEC, but now it had its own parliament and it could create and enforce its own laws. In many ways, it was every bit the United States of Europe that Winston Churchill had envisaged back in 1945. In the same way, the United States of America is a bunch of states that are united. The European Union is a bunch of nations that are unified. Call it branding, but they are very similar. States in the USA have the ability to create and enforce their own laws in the same way that nations in the European Union have the ability to create and enforce their own laws. States in the USA collect and pass revenue along to the federal government in the same way that member states in the European Union collect and pass revenue along to the Union. Of course, there are a few key differences between the two though. Firstly, of course, the European Union is not a country, so I guess there's that. But it is also about the level of influence in each of these categories. Sure, 
The European Union can create its own laws, but they tend to be laws around macroeconomic issues, immigration and issues on a national or international level. It is unlikely that any individual would ever get arrested for breaking an EU law. The next is sure. Revenue is collected and dispersed from the European Union, but it is not nearly on the same level as the United States, where federal budgets can heavily impact the state's economics. The European Union also doesn't have things like a head of state, a standing military, or even a seat in the United Nations, although of course all of its member states do individually. The European Union did take a big step to looking a little bit more like a country in 2002 though, when it introduced its own currency, the Euro, just 10 years after its formation. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more, we answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The euro was a surprisingly large step for the European Union to take not only logistically to transition economies over from their own independent cash, but also to incentivize them to do so. Today, we kind of take euros for granted as a very reputable and stable currency. But consider this for a second. Let's say the USA, Mexico, and Canada all got together and formed the North American Union and created yank bucks. Would you trade in your US dollar's life savings and be happy to be paid back in yank bucks? Well, probably not. It's an untested currency that people don't have much confidence in. This kind of decision would probably cause chaos. But this is exactly what the European Union did, less than 10 years after its official formation. There were some nations that opted out of this currency thing though, most notably the United Kingdom who wanted to hold on to their great British pound, for among other reasons, its legendary reliability as a world reserve currency, which was probably fair in a sense. Liras and Deutschmarks and Franks and Kroner were all a bit eh in terms of stability, so moving over to the Euro was probably a good move for these countries, but the pound was rock solid so the UK held onto it, which in hindsight was probably a good thing, because in 2016, England decided to leave the Union altogether. The 2016 referendum results came as a surprise to everybody, even the people that actually supported the Brexit movement, 
who now had to come up with a plan to make this actually happen and desperately backpedal on some of the promises that they made during the campaign. This process, unsurprisingly, has taken a very long time. It has seen two British Prime Ministers step down and a lot of uncertainty about what the future of the nation held. The nation made the decision to leave the Union without actually considering what that would mean for them. Remember all of those special privileges that we explored that were afforded to the members of the Union? Open borders for workers and goods and services of member nations and and all that jazz? Well, it turns out a lot of that stuff is pretty important for the UK and its economy. A lot of the delay of this Brexit business has been around negotiating these points with the European Union, British Parliament and the British people, which are not groups that are all in alignment. Half of the UK's population didn't even want a Brexit. British Parliament is British Parliament and the European Union is not exactly going to be favourable to a nation that is telling them to peace out. Oddly enough, this whole uncertainty thing may actually be the worst part of the whole Brexit process. You see, I have said it before, I will say it again, and I am saying it now, that confidence and stability is the foundation of any good economy. And there may be nowhere that this is more evident than in Brexit. The European Union probably didn't impact the lives of regular British citizens too much, unless they worked across the channel or travelled a lot, but what it did impact was business. Businesses that relied on foreign imports or exported any of their goods would have to work within the rules set down by the European Union. Most notably, the tariffs levied on the nations outside the Union. This means that most European businesses trade primarily with other European nations because it just makes good economic sense to do so. But this potentially won't be the case for the UK anymore. Global trade is not as simple as one country makes this and then sends it here. A majority of trade is done through global supply chains for large companies. Companies like Rolls-Royce in the UK build jet engines and motor vehicles. When you are building a jet engine, you are heavily dependent on a global supply chain. The factory in Woking that assembles these engines needs exotic materials like titanium that are refined and imported from places like Russia and Australia. You need management software developed in Germany, ducting made in France, and all of these go into aeroplanes built in either Germany or the United States. These engines take thousands of components from hundreds of suppliers in dozens of countries to assemble, and this supply chain is a very delicate system. When setting up global supply chains, companies like Rolls-Royce will employ teams of accountants and lawyers to work with the engineers to ensure that they are sourcing components that will work effectively, but also work to minimize the expenses of shipping and tariffs if they need to be paid. Oftentimes, this can mean setting up factories and distribution centers within nations with more favorable trade structures because this one-time expense will more than pay for itself with more cheaply sourced components over the life of the supply chain. With Brexit negotiations up in the air, this whole system is a little bit off. You see, no business in their right mind wants to invest any money into setting up a supply chain at the moment because there is nothing to say the rules won't change entirely next year when Brexit is finalized. 
People have been fearing a no-deal Brexit as a kind of worst-case scenario for this whole leaving the European Union thing. But in reality, this uncertainty is worse. Sure, having a hard border with Ireland, tariffs on export products, and a lack of working mobility for the thousands of international employees currently working in Britain is not great. But companies can work around this. Countries and companies adapt. And while this might put a bit of downwards pressure on the economy, new trade deals can be negotiated, new supplies can be found, and the nation can find its feet again. In a no-deal Brexit, a company like Rolls-Royce might just reevaluate its supply partners. Instead of importing titanium compressor blades from Germany, it will get them from Japan. It's the kind of change that companies make all the time when new laws and restrictions are enacted. Just look at companies like BMW. A famously German car manufacturer? Well, half of their cars are made in China now. This is to get around import taxes from sending their cars to China from Germany. And it makes sense given how big of a market China is to just pay the one-time price of a factory as opposed to the ongoing expense of tariffs. But these are expensive changes to make. And no company inside or outside the UK is prepared to alter their supply chains until they are confident that they know what is happening with this whole Brexit deal. What this means is that in the meantime, the whole economy is just sitting in a stagnant speculation until something happens, good or bad. Brexit is obviously a heated political issue, and there was probably other things besides critical economic analysis going through the minds of voters when they headed out to the polls in 2016. But it has become an issue of economics above all else. Now, anybody who has watched this channel knows that I hate speculating about the future of anything. But... The future of the nation is probably not as dire as most people will believe. The United Kingdom maintained their own currency, which is still a stable and widely recognized currency around the world. They have strong domestic industries and their banking and finance sector might even stand to gain from the new economic conditions of a post-Brexit nation. You can watch my video on the economy of the United Kingdom to understand more about that. But there is one thing that I hate to do even more than predicting the future, and that is giving relationship advice. But I think here, on a video about economics, it is the one time in my life that I will be able to give this advice with confidence. United Kingdom, you had a great run with the European Union. Your relationship went from a council membership to a special economic zone to a beautiful union. But you drifted apart. And that's okay. Both of you are strong, independent economies in your own right. The European Union will continue without you, and you need to move on as well. I know you are dragging out this breakup because you are unsure if you're making the best decision. But you have committed to this now. Don't worry about staying as just trading partners. Nobody ever stays as just trading partners. You need to rip that band-aid off. You need to get out there and focus on your own economy. Make new trading partners and make them sorry they lost you.
Hi guys, I hope you enjoyed the latest video. As always, a huge thank you to our new patrons over on Patreon. A huge thank you to everybody who contributes here. And a big thank you to those of you watching. If you did, please consider liking and subscribing. If you don't, that's okay. Dislike, unsubscribe, and call me a Keynesian shill in the comments section. But still be sure to hop onto our Discord server to argue with me in the Q&A session that will be hosted 15 minutes after this video goes live on our Discord server and then live streamed over on our second channel linked in the video description. So hopefully I'll see you guys all over there. Thanks guys. Bye.